Palestinians are being treated in Gaza is just a shame on, on this government and on the uh, State Department. 20 trucks of aid have finally gone into Gaza, but Americans stuck there still can't get out. For Saturday, October 21st, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. We'll catch you up to speed on the latest in former President Trump's various trials, including a plea deal for two of the key lawyers who pushed to overturn the 2020 election. And are you pleading guilty today because you agree that there is a sufficient factual basis, that there are enough facts that support this plea of guilty? I do. And we'll look at what's next as House Republicans try to find a speaker they can all agree on. Also, Colombian musical superstar Maluma stops by NPR and shares some big news. It's impossible to say it that loud, but it's such a big dream. I always dream about this. It's perfect timing. First, these news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is praising the arrival of humanitarian aid in Gaza. Two weeks into a campaign of Israeli airstrikes that began after Hamas launched a deadly attack into Israel. Biden is calling the opening of the supply route the result of days of diplomatic engagement at the highest levels. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports the delivery of food, water and other critical supplies comes as Palestinian militants and the Israeli military continue to carry out attacks and airstrikes in the region. The delivery of humanitarian aid was widely anticipated, but the first truckloads did not impress Palestinian officials on the receiving end. The Ministry of Health in Gaza released a statement saying, quote, What entered Gaza today is less than 3% of the humanitarian and medical supplies Gaza used to receive on a daily basis before the war. Over 600 trucks used to arrive in Gaza every day. The statement went on to say that, quote, Not allowing fuel in is extremely dangerous to the lives of patients. Hospitals use the fuel for emergency power generators and for desalination plants that provide safe drinking water to Gazans. Some 200 more aid trucks continue to wait on the Egyptian side. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. The decision to allow aid to be trucked into Gaza comes a day after Hamas militants freed two American hostages. Ben Renan is the brother of Natalie Renan, who was released with her mother Judith on Friday. He tells NPR that the news was a surprise. Natalie and Judith aren't politicians. They aren't soldiers. They're They're people who love people. And so uh, our family is grieving in this moment of elation. We're grieving for all the families that are still being kept hostage. The State Department says 10 other Americans are unaccounted for in Gaza and that the Biden administration will keep working to find them. House Republicans are preparing to nominate a new speaker more than two weeks after Kevin McCarthy was ousted from his leadership role. NPR's Ron Elving reports two nominees, Congressman Jim Jordan and Majority Leader Steve Scalise, have failed in their bids for the speakership, leaving lawmakers scrambling to find a pathway forward. Given the unity among Democrats in the present case, a Republican needs nearly every Republican vote to become Speaker, and Republicans have a very slim majority. So if even a handful of their members refuse to go along with the rest, uh, they can deny the party the power to choose a Speaker. That's NPR's Ron Elving reporting. This is NPR News in Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. Anita Mann, who had five relatives in Israel abducted by Hamas, says two of them have died. Jason Greenberg says that 80-year-old Carmela Don and her 12-year-old granddaughter Noya Don were killed. Greenberg says Carmela had a heart condition and Noya was on the autism spectrum. MBTA officials are trying to determine the cause of an electrical system problem that shut down part of the Green Line yesterday. About 100 people were forced to evacuate a Green Line train and walk along the tracks yesterday after a problem with the electrical system. The Boston Globe reports that part of the train that connects to the overhead electrical wires on the new Green Line extension failed. The line was shut down for about four hours until crews repaired part of the train's overhead system. A jury in New Hampshire ended its first day of deliberations yesterday without issuing a verdict in the case of a man charged with fatally shooting a retired couple. 27-year-old Logan Clegg is charged with murder in the deaths of Stephen and Wendy Reed. The couple was shot multiple times after going for a walk on a trail in Concord last year. Clegg lived in a tent near that trail. His attorneys say he did not kill the Reeds and that the prosecutor's case is full of holes. Berkeley City Music is getting ready for a party to celebrate 30 years of bringing music to underserved communities. The Amplify Berkeley Gala gets underway in about an hour at the Weston Copley Place. Berkeley College of Music spokesperson Tori Donahue says the annual event is filled with world-class performances and benefits Berkeley City Music students. All the money raised at the gala goes directly to Berkeley City Music, which is a it's global nonprofit that brings music to um, underserved youth across the world, um, particularly in North America. Donahue says since 1993, Berkeley City Music has awarded 275 full tuition college scholarships, totaling more than $33 million. Tonight's event features actor, poet, and musician Malcolm Jamal Warner as MC and legendary rap artist MC Light. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. And for the first time since Hamas attacked Israel two weeks ago, aid trucks were allowed to cross the Egyptian border into Gaza. They're bringing in some desperately needed supplies to the besieged territory, but compared to what is needed, the aid going in is not much, and still nobody is getting out. NPR's Ruth Sherlock has been following the developments today from Tel Aviv and joins us now. Hey, Ruth. Hey. So what's happening right now on Gaza's border with Egypt? Well, today uh, the border was finally opened and 20 trucks of aid made it inside Gaza. This is the result of days of diplomacy, but you know, it barely begins to address the needs of the population there. Supplies have been running low of so much. I mean, in hospitals, there's reports of surgeries now being performed without anesthetic. And a doctor in a Gaza hospital has been posting these images on social media saying he's treated bacterial wound infections with vinegar and that today dozens of children came into the hospital with these horrific burns all over their bodies and he's run out of dressings to treat them. As far as the aid goes, there are negotiations ongoing to get more aid in. But the issue here is that, you know, Israel says it's concerned about aid going to Hamas and wants to be able to inspect what goes in from Egypt. And so far, it hasn't allowed in fuel, which is critically needed. Meantime, what is the latest in terms of casualties in Gaza? 
Well, dozens more people died from airstrikes today. The Palestinian Ministry of Health says that more than 1,600 children have now been killed in the last two weeks, and many of the dead are having to be placed in these mass graves. The UN refugee agency, UNRWA, meanwhile, says it's hosting about half a million people in schools and even in warehouses. But as Juliette Tuma, UNRWA's director of communications, told me, they're doing this whilst their own staff are being impacted by the war. As of this morning, uh, it is very sad to confirm that at least 17 of my co colleagues at UNRWA have been killed uh, during the war. Uh, many of our staff have been displaced themselves. Many uh, lost uh, their homes, uh, lost loved ones. Israel has told people in Gaza to evacuate to the south of the territory. We spoke to a number of people there today. For example, Wafa El-Saka, a retired American school teacher, and she told NPR that the bombardments continue there too. I'm scared when the night comes in because I, we can't see where it's happening. And I'm scared when the daylight comes out because I'm going to see what is going to happen. Happen. Last night, her friend's house where she's staying in southern Gaza was almost hit by an airstrike. The sound of the glass shatter, the, the rocks coming through, the debris. The kids were screaming, yelling, everybody was screaming, yelling. The attack hit a house just two doors down. I said it could have been the house that we're in and we're not warned and, and we have 50 people inside, all of us with kids and so... I don't want to see this anymore. I don't want to see the pain. I don't want to see the destruction. Enough is enough. She and other Americans in Gaza were told by the State Department that the Rafah border crossing to Egypt would open at 10 a.m. to foreign passport holders. U.S. citizen Aboud Okal is also at the border. Everybody's just waiting for someone to come out at the gate and say, OK, we have confirmation now from the Egyptian side that you guys can be Lit in. He and his wife and child are from Massachusetts and came to visit relatives in Gaza. Because we live in the U.S., our whole life is there, our homes are there, my son's daycare is there, my job is there. He's been trying to leave since the war began, but he's stuck. Days went by of us daily trying to reach to the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, and there was no information. On one side, we, we remain hopeful and we try to contact State Department as much as we can for further clarity. Uh, and on the other side, we have to deal with the reality that we're in and prepare that this might drag longer than we expected. And you know, the reality of staying is that there's little food, no gas for cooking, and he's in a small house with 40 other people with drinking water rapidly running out. But when we spoke to him this morning, he was optimistic he could leave soon. We consider ourselves very fortunate because we're uh, Palestinian-Americans that have this opportunity, hopefully. But as the hours passed, with no one allowed out, his hope increasingly turned to frustration. He sent us this voice memo around mid-afternoon when it was clear that he wouldn't be able to cross. This marks the third day that we've attempted to cross based on instructions from the State Department. Uh, the way that American citizens are being treated in Gaza is just a shame on, on this government and on the uh, State Department. Ruth. Last weekend shows, we heard from Americans in Gaza being told that they could leave through the Rafah gate. It's a week later. The situation still has not changed. What do we know about why people are not being allowed to leave? 
Well, you know, Scott, for, for Palestinians, one of the issues is that Egypt doesn't want to host a large refugee population that could become permanent, like you have in Jordan and Lebanon. For foreigners, it's not clear why Egypt isn't letting them out of Gaza. The US says it's working tirelessly to try to secure this access for its citizens. But for now, Wafa al-Saka and Abu Dokal and their families are still trapped. And Paris Ruth Sherlock in Tel Aviv. Thank you so much. Thank you. Much of the world sees the Israel-Hamas war as a catastrophe. What about Russia's president, Vladimir Putin? Putin has expressed condolences for the civilians killed on both sides and has offered to mediate, but his opponents believe he also sees the conflict as an opportunity. NPR's Philip Reeves reports from the city of, of Riga in Latvia. It's a calm autumn day on the ancient streets of Riga. In the National Library, by a river that flows into the nearby Baltic Sea, discussions will soon begin about the future of the world. I welcome you all to Riga and to the Riga conference. This is a gathering of politicians and diplomats, soldiers and security experts. They hold this international conference here every year. This year is different. The world is a mess, Europe is a mess, the Middle East is a mess, everything is a mess. Edgar Zrinkevich is president of Latvia. This former Soviet Republic of some two million people is now on NATO's front line. Latvia's government strongly supports Ukraine. The Russian border is only 140 miles away from here. We cannot let down our guard. Kristianis Kadins, Latvia's foreign minister, worries that the international spotlight has swiveled away from the war in Europe. Of course, Israel needs our support, um, but uh, also uh, so does Ukraine. Kadins says Putin is an opportunist who'll exploit the Middle East crisis to distract attention from his war. And our response must be that uh, uh, the political uh, support and also public support uh, for Ukraine does not and cannot diminish. Putin blames the Israel-Hamas war on a fundamental failure of US world leadership, saying that Washington ignored the Palestinian issue for too long. He's trying to win support, particularly among global South nations, by arguing it's time for geopolitical power to shift to the east. Change is already underway. When Putin met China's President Xi in Beijing this week, he called for them to closely coordinate foreign policy. What Russia and China are publicly saying is that they are not satisfied with the world order that Europe and the United States want to defend. Slavoj Medevsky is director of Poland's Institute of International Affairs. Is Europe doing enough to prepare itself for this new geopolitical challenge, he asks, and adds... My answer is no. In Europe, this huge issue is now a matter of serious debate. If Russia is allowed to win in Ukraine, that would mean that the world order created after World War II starts to crumble. That's Kalins, Latvia's foreign minister again. Russia's opponents in Europe worry the US is losing interest in resolving distant conflicts. President Joe Biden's seeking to calm these fears. US leadership holds the world together, he said Thursday. 
Julian Lindley French hopes Biden is right. It comes down to American leadership, and it's America's choice. Lindley French chairs the Alphen Group, an informal network of foreign policy and defense experts. If America decides it can't be bothered anymore, then the price America will pay will be very profound indeed. So far, the White House is showing that it can be bothered. Biden's asking for an extra $61 billion for Ukraine and $14 billion for Israel, though getting approval from Congress will be tough. On Europe's front line, there's still hope. Currently, we are succeeding. We simply cannot give up. Kalins, Latvia's foreign minister, hopes in the end Putin's dream of a new world order will prove to be a fantasy. Philip Reeves, NPR News, Riga, Latvia. Tomorrow on All Things Considered, one way to understand the trauma Israelis have experienced since the attacks of October 7th is to hear how many more people are phoning into a national mental health hotline. We had 6,000 calls in the first week, which is about 25% of what we get in an entire year. That's Emmy Palmore, the chair of NADAL, an Israeli helpline that serves people experiencing PTSD from violence and war. And even she is dealing with feelings of helplessness she has never experienced before. I took down all the shutters. My house in complete dark. I just, I don't want anyone looking into my house. I don't want to see a shadow. I'm afraid of shadows. The story of how one helpline is working day and night to help Israelis deal with a trauma felt at a national level. That's tomorrow on All Things Considered. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Burton's Grill and Bar with modern American cuisine and signature dishes like crab-crusted haddock and superfood salad. Eight locations in greater Boston, burtonsgrill.com. And the Umbrella Arts Center, presenting Lizzie. Lizzie Borden finally gets her say in this ghost story meets rock concert musical, now through November 5th. More at theumbrellaarts.org. WBUR occasionally offers you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is appreciated, but it's not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. More than a dozen trucks carrying food, water, and other critical supplies crossed into Gaza from Egypt today. This is the first humanitarian aid to arrive in the Palestinian territory since Israel began its counteroffensive against Hamas two weeks ago. A judge has ordered former President Donald Trump to pay a $5,000 fine for violating a gag order. The fine stems from his $250 million civil fraud trial that's underway in New York City. 
English soccer star Bobby Charlton has died at the age of 86. He was a mainstay of Manchester United, winning the World Cup in 1966 and the European Cup in 1968. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com/npr. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is all things considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. When President Joe Biden entered office, he promised to ensure environmental justice for communities of color that have been disproportionately harmed by pollution. The head of Biden's EPA, Michael Regan, is the first black man to lead the agency, and he told CNN back in 2021 that he sees this as a priority. This administration and this EPA will operate differently than we ever had. You know, systemic racism is an issue that this country is dealing with. This administration is facing it head on. The top of Regan's list, an infamous 85-mile-long chemical corridor in Louisiana nicknamed Cancer Alley. Last year, the EPA launched a high-profile investigation into whether the state discriminated against black communities there. A podcast called Sea Change, produced by stations WWNO and WRKF in Louisiana, took a look at all of this. We'll talk to the podcast co-host Hallie Parker in a bit, but first we'll listen to part of that podcast, a visit she made to a town called Reserve. Continue for three miles. Reserve is a 40-minute drive from New Orleans. It sits on the bank of the Mississippi River. So I just went through Laplace, and now I'm going on a windy road just along the levee. I'm passing by a lot of little houses, very like countryside. I'm driving down what's called the Great River Road, which is next to the Mississippi and runs for about 70 miles between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. In some parts, it's beautiful. These bucolic country scenes, farmland covered in sugarcane lines the street. But that's interrupted with stretches of industrial plants, also here because of the river. I'm approaching a plant. It's made up of a bunch of different like steel structures. There's some orangey lights. It's actually now that I can see the label on one of the storage containers. It's the Dinka plant. This is how I know I've made it to reserve. When I see the Dinka Performance Elastomers plant. It's a chemical plant, the one the story is all about. It sits on about 250 acres on one edge of the community. The company has the rights to 600 acres, and a lot of the rest of that land is leased to a farmer who grazes his cows, as well as burros, oddly enough. You know, those mini donkey-like animals from Africa. And while you're driving, you're actually going underneath these pipelines. Um, that are lifted above the road and then go across from the facility over the levee and down toward where they load the material onto barges. 
Dinka produces neoprene, the stuff used to make things like wetsuits or beer koozies, although most of it is used by the automotive and construction industries for everything from hoses to roofing. It's heat resistant, waterproof, and durable. But neoprene's key ingredient is also a pretty toxic chemical called chloroprene. Quick history lesson here. The plant didn't always belong to Dinka, which is a Japanese chemical company. The American chemical giant DuPont first built the plant in the 1960s. Brought to you by DuPont, makers of better things for better living through chemistry. You and DuPont, there's a lot of good chemistry between us. DuPont actually invented both neoprene and chloroprene. And at one point, DuPont actually owned two plants manufacturing neoprene, the one in reserve and its main facility in an area of Louisville, Kentucky, known as Rubbertown. But in 2008, the Rubbertown plant shut down. Why? Because of immense political pressure from local officials and residents who feared the pollution coming from that plant. So that's why this plant in reserve is now the only neoprene plant in the United States. And Robert Taylor lives about a half mile from it. Good morning. Hey, how are you doing? I'm Hallie. Hallie? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm Robert. Robert stands about five foot ten and wears glasses. He's a slim black man, and for 82, his skin remains relatively uncrinkled. He moves slowly but deliberately the same way he pursues his work as the executive director of the Concerned Citizens of St. John. He founded the group six years ago to pressure the state and the company to cut emissions in reserve and across St. John the Baptist Parish. We hop in his truck and we go on a tour of reserve. First, we head even closer to the plant. It's not a long drive. Just two streets over is the plant's fence line. I just want to let you see that the fence behind these homes, that's DuPont Danker, running all along here. Roberts had to deal with this for so long, he names both companies to describe the plant now run by Dinka. So this is literally the fence line community, the streets. Yeah, this street here. uh, Well, this is fence line right here, but the fence line moves with the community. We We keep driving following the fence as it winds through the neighborhood. Most of the homes are modest, all single-family homes. It's quiet. We take another turn and then see an elementary school building, the one I told you about with the air monitor outside, Fifth Ward Elementary School. <laughs> yeah, that's Fifth Ward there. Oh, okay. See, and that's where, that's where the property turns and goes around the playground. This school and its playground are closer to the Dinka plant than almost anything else in town. The plant is just beyond a tree line. About 400 students go to school here, pre-kindergarten to fourth grade. And we're every day, uh, we're busing black kids from all over the parish to this elementary school. And like Robert says, most of the kids are black. Same as reserve. The school long precedes the plant. So does the neighborhood. When Robert went there in the 1950s, it was a high school. Now, it's all little kids. Most are younger than nine. 
And depending on which way the wind blows, they're breathing air that can have 30 to 180 times more chloroprene than what's considered safe. That's according to data from the air monitors the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, set up at the school and around the parish. For Robert, it's astonishing. I really can't find the words. I'm just flabbergasted, you know, uh, at what these people are being allowed to get away with. But the plant might not get away with it for much longer. This school and the neighborhood are at the center of a historic civil rights investigation and a new federal commitment to slash air pollution. And this groundbreaking investigation could change everything. It could push the state to relocate Fifth Ward students to a school that's safer. That could prove difficult, though. Driving around with Robert, I see that the Dinka plant isn't the only petrochemical plant that residents are forced to live with. There's the Dinka plant, two grain elevators, and a massive Marathon Petroleum oil refinery. It's not something you only see in reserve. I see it all the time when I drive along the Mississippi River. Which raises the question, how did Dinka and all of these plants get here anyway? What's made this region along the river so attractive for chemical manufacturing? And why are they so often concentrated around areas like reserve? Areas that are Black. That was a portion of WWNO and WRKF's podcast, Sea Change, co-hosted by reporter Hallie Parker, who joins me now with some updates, some big updates on this investigation in Louisiana. Hey, Hallie. Hey, Scott. Why don't we start with that very last question you left us with? Why are so many chemical plants located in places like Reserve? Yeah. So back when I was reporting this episode, I actually learned a lot about the history of industrial development along the Mississippi River. So I found out that the answer to that question really dated back to slavery. You know, these giant plots of land owned by plantations were the perfect sites to build these big oil refineries and petrochemical plants near the river. Um, And it came with all of these perks, perks like only having to deal with one landowner and easy access to the river for transport and export of their goods. But the land near those plantations is also where the people who used to be enslaved settled. So when the plants came to town, it also put those black communities right up against the fence line. Interesting. Um, So one of those big updates, uh, since you and your team put out this episode, the EPA actually dropped the civil rights investigation into Cancer Alley. Have they explained that at all? Yeah. So they have given some explanation. They've said they weren't going to be able to finish their investigation by their deadline, so they ended up just dropping it. But I've tried to get a better understanding of all this, and they haven't responded to comment. Have you, through your reporting, been able to get any indications elsewhere of what they were thinking and doing that? Yeah. So, you know, I've been following this for a long time, so I really wanted to learn more. Um, So I filed what's called a Freedom of Information Act request looking for public records. Um, And that's because the EPA had released a preliminary report that found evidence that the decisions of two Louisiana agencies did lead to the discrimination of black residents. And, you know, the EPA and Louisiana's environmental regulator and its health department had entered negotiations to try to map out some changes everyone could agree to. So the record records that I got back from that FOIA gave me a glimpse into what the agreement they worked on would have included. 
I learned that would have required the state to do robust studies and analyses on proposed industrial projects to figure out if that proposal would worsen racial disparities. And that's something Louisiana had never done before. And that would have been a big change. Yeah, that would have been a huge change. And that's something that lawyers and advocates say would have made a big difference because they've been asking for it for a while. But um, while the EPA and the state agencies worked on that settlement agreement, it started to hit some snags. Louisiana's Attorney General Jeff Landry hired lawyers to participate in the talks, and they also represented a chemical company that was named in the investigation, which led to concerns about a conflict of interest. And Landry also launched a major lawsuit against the EPA over its civil rights investigation, basically arguing that the EPA had overstepped. Um, His lawsuit partially hinges on this argument that the EPA's investigation would discriminate against Louisianans who aren't black. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, similar to a reverse racism argument that we heard in the lawsuit that led to the end of affirmative action in colleges earlier this year. Um, So a few weeks after Landry sued, the talk started to fall apart and the EPA just closed the case without resolution. I'd really love to know what some of the people you talk to think about all of the, all of these developments. Like like Robert, that resident and activist in reserve. What has he said? Yeah, I'm glad that you said that because I did talk to Robert in the months after the EPA dropped the case, and he told me that he was really shocked at first. This case was something that brought a lot of hope to residents who have opposed the pollution in their community. Um, the EPA has said, you know, Robert's community has a cancer risk that's 50 times higher than the national average. So now he's frustrated because Regan, the head of the EPA, has promised to use his full power to help residents and hasn't. He stated that he was going to use all the tools in his toolbox. Well, I want to hold him to that. I mean, that 50 times higher is such an astounding statistic. You you hear the EPA might be coming to help. It ends up not. I mean, what, what does Robert want to see happen next? Robert really just wants to make sure that the EPA is held accountable, and he says he's not giving up along with a lot of other local activists. But, you know, meanwhile, the EPA has sued the Dinka plant near Robert's home, and they did that earlier this year, saying that it poses this substantial and imminent danger to residents. So if that's successful, the lawsuit has the potential to require the company to pollute way less than it is now. And a hearing for that case is going to be scheduled in the next few weeks. That is Hallie Parker, a co-host of Sea Change, a podcast from stations WWNO and WRKF in Louisiana. Thank you so much. Thanks, Scott. Carlisle Calhoun is the project's managing producer, and you can hear more of their follow-up reporting about the EPA and Cancer Alley in more recent episodes wherever you find your podcasts. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A lot of Americans are dying of drug overdoses, and a lot of those overdoses are tied to fentanyl. In the next few minutes, we're going to look at a very different and supporters say more helpful approach to that problem. 
It pushes health care and also individual dignity over drug arrests and incarceration. NPR's Brian Mann joins us live from a conference in Phoenix, Arizona, where these ideas are being talked about. Hey, Brian. Hey, Scott. So let's start with the basics. What is the problem here that needs solving? Well, what's interesting is that people here say there are really two linked problems. The first is drug overdoses driven by fentanyl, killing record numbers of people, more than 112,000 deaths a year, according to the latest data. Everyone agrees that's just unbelievably catastrophic. The second part is more controversial. People at this conference say it's now clear that the drug war, which focused on a police response, you know, lots of arrests, lots of prisons, they say all that simply failed. So... Activists like Cassandra Frederic, who heads a a group called the Drug Policy Alliance uh, that organizes gathering, they say it's time to go in a whole new direction. There is actual research and science, and there's 49 other states we can look to (laughs) that are arresting people for drug possession and just be like, oh, how's that going? How's it going over there? I was one of those people criminalized for drug possession. I lost my job. I ended up homeless. And Brian, I mean, 120,000 deaths is such a staggering figure every time you hear it. What are some of the ideas here for alternatives? Yeah, so people here are pushing for a really massive public investment in healthcare, in affordable housing, in job training, in mental health care. And here's a controversial part, Scott. They also want decriminalization. The hope of activists here is that someday we'll look back on the criminalization of all the millions of people who use drugs the way we look back now on alcohol prohibition. I mean, a lot of ideas that are good in theory get caught in so many things like politics to begin with. I mean, do the folks at this conference believe that some of these big changes could be possible, could be realistic? It's a good question. And, you know, over the last decade, we have seen a lot of these ideas gain some traction. The so-called harm reduction movement, where people still using drugs are helped with things like clean needles or fentanyl test strips, you know, where people hand out naloxone to help reverse overdoses. Those things used to be controversial and even illegal. Now they're pretty mainstream. Yeah, and, you know, as, as you know, and as you've covered, uh, Critics will say these strategies enable drug use, and I feel like fentanyl itself is so deadly, I imagine it it would be a harder sell to decriminalize. What do people there at the conference say about that pushback that they know is coming? Yeah, people here acknowledge the public's really frightened, you know, by seeing so many homeless, so many people in severe addiction, so many deaths. And some politicians are responding to that fear by pushing for more severe drug laws, similar to what we saw during the crack cocaine era. Uh, And, you know, so there's really is a a backlash out there. Um, But, you know, some people say, Scott, that even high risk drugs like fentanyl become even more dangerous when they're criminalized. Mm. This is sure controversial. um, But people here are convinced that if drug users have more support and care, they will be safer. That's interesting. NPR's addiction correspondent Brian Mann at the Drug Policy Reform Conference in Phoenix, Arizona. Brian, thank you so much for talking to us and for bringing us this report. Thanks, Scott. This is NPR News. Thanks for joining us. I'm Josie Guarino. It's 539. Coming up at 6 on 90.9 WBUR, stories of the digital space and its effect on the family connection IRL.
If you're taking a road trip this fall, use the drive to catch up on your favorite WBUR and NPR shows live, or tap on the WBUR app to rewind shows and play them back. Download the app for free before you hit the road. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum featuring freshly installed galleries and a lineup of dynamic programs and events that will feed your curiosity. Plan your visit today. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare and a new food truck, available for catering and events. Online booking at lacuchara.com. I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. The first humanitarian aid convoy has arrived in Gaza two weeks into an Israeli airstrike campaign that began after a deadly attack by Hamas. The United Nations says 20 trucks carrying food, water, and other life-saving supplies will be helpful, but it's only a fraction of what the region needs. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the Biden administration is welcoming the much-needed aid, but he also warned Hamas not to interfere with assistance. House Republicans are scrambling to nominate a candidate to become the next speaker. Lawmakers headed back to the drawing board after Congressman Jim Jordan failed to secure enough votes on three ballots this week. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. From the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. Who wants to be House Speaker? Two people have tried and failed so far in the week since House Republicans ousted Kevin McCarthy. That is not stopping about 10 people so far from throwing their hat into the ring and expressing interest in running. Next week, House Republicans are hoping to narrow that list down, find their person, and maybe even take votes to the floor. That is, of course, a best-case scenario that has yet to materialize at any point so far for this warring caucus in this process. NPR's congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales is covering this and joins me now. Hey, Scott. Good to be with you. So let's start with Ohio Republican Jim Jordan, who is the judiciary chairman. I guess he'll stay judiciary chairman because he lost a third round of votes on the House floor yesterday. What happened after that? Right. The third try was not the charm. In each round, the list of Republicans voting against him only grew. That went to 25 no's yesterday. He could only lose a handful of votes in this narrowly controlled chamber. And he carries a lot of baggage filled with past controversies and, in the end, moderates and members of appropriations committees that remember his fights against spending and others well brought his bid down. And he and his allies also deployed these aggressive tactics that led to death threats against his detractors. And Mm -hmm. this only solidified and grew his opposition. Finally, it was this closed door secret ballot. 
after that third round on the floor that decided that he should end his speaker race. So House Republicans have kind of gone through the usual suspects already, right? Uh, The majority leader, Steve Scalise, didn't have the support. Uh, Jordan's a high-profile committee chair. He tries and, and fails. Now it's kind of unclear who comes next. Take us through what's happening. Right. This is a longer list this time. Indeed, about 10, as you mentioned. I was outside the doors when this conference meeting had ended with the secret ballot and the decision for Jordan to step aside. And I heard one member come out. I saw him alert his staff right away. It was the first thing he said, let's launch our campaign materials to run for speaker. And so now candidates have until noon on Sunday to submit their names. Monday night, the conference will hold a forum with the contenders. And on Tuesday, they're going to hold another internal vote, this to narrow the list down of these new candidates. And they hope maybe move to the floor with votes again for a new speaker. Who are some of the contenders here? So they include Tom Emmer. This is a Republican whip, so a member of leadership. He has served in the House since 2015. He's already drawn an endorsement from the former speaker who was ousted earlier this month, Kevin McCarthy. And another is Byron Donalds. This is a Florida congressman who's had a much shorter tenure in Congress, but he's very popular. He even got votes when McCarthy was struggling to get the gavel in January. And he's arguing that he's a perfect candidate. He would be the first African-American Speaker of the House. And these two are a good example of the stark divide within the conference itself. Emmer voted to certify the 2020 elections, which nowadays can hurt a candidate, especially among the hardliners in this conference. Now, Donald's, for his part, he voted against certifying the 2020 election. He campaigned for Jordan's failed speakership, but he's already drawn his own endorsement, including one from Mario Diaz-Balart. This is uh, the dean of the Florida delegation, and he was one of those detractors who kept voting against Jordan. The challenge here is that just a handful of House Republicans opposing somebody tanks their candidacy. Is there anyone in the conference who can unite the party? That's really unclear. And they have a lot of deadlines they're facing to get this process started to find a new speaker. It costs about a week. And they're facing a deadline November 17 for a government shutdown. And these brutal votes in recent days are a reminder of how hard it is for this Republican conference to get on the same page. So a successful speaker candidate is going to have to pull off something that appears nearly impossible right now, which is uniting some extreme wings of the party. And these series of failed Republican speakership bids in recent weeks is proof of that. You do not have to be a member of Congress to be speaker. Claudia, you know Congress pretty well. Are you interested? (laughs) I am not. (laughs) That's NPR's Claudia Grosales. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. We toss around the word unprecedented a lot when we talk about former President Donald Trump. And when you say something so many times, it starts to blur and to lose its effect. But it always needs to be said because no other president has been impeached twice. No other president has faced criminal charges, let alone criminal charges tied to an effort to overturn a presidential election and stay in power. And no other president with all of that has still positioned himself as a front runner to once again win a presidential nomination. All of this is playing out right now in federal and state courtrooms, and sometimes it is really hard to follow the flow and figure out what matters in the bigger picture and what's more incremental. So we're going to take a few minutes today to try to make sense of the big news surrounding Trump on trial this week, and we will start in Georgia. Trump and 18 others faced racketeering and conspiracy charges to overturn the 2020 election. This week, two of his former lawyers, Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesborough, pleaded guilty to reduced charges. And are you pleading guilty today because you agree that there is a sufficient factual basis, that there are enough facts that support this plea of guilty? 
Indeed. So what does their plea deal mean for their former co-defendant, Donald Trump? I'm joined by my colleague, senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro. Hey, Domenico. Hey, Scott. And former federal prosecutor and current Georgetown law professor, Paul Butler. Hey, Paul. Hi, Scott. So let's start with this guilty plea. And Domenico, remind us about Sidney Powell, especially, and the role that she played in Trump's attempts to overturn the election. Well, Sidney Powell was an attorney for Donald Trump. You know, she helped really orchestrate his legal efforts to try to overturn the 2020 election, uh, which he, you know Trump lost and then decided to say that, hey, uh, he this thing was rigged, yeah. which there's absolutely no evidence of. In fact, there's proof that it wasn't because it went to court over 60 times. They lost over 60 times. And Powell was really at the center of a lot of this, spreading baseless claims of widespread election fraud and that just didn't exist. The two moments you need to remember about Sidney Powell that tell you a lot about her role was, first of all, she was standing next to Rudy Giuliani at that November press conference when he had the, it probably was hair dye, we don't know for sure, dripping down his face. One of her quotes was, this is a massive influence of communist money through Venezuela, Cuba, and likely China, and the interference with our elections just spinning this massive global conspiracy. She was also in the Oval Office for a December meeting where where people talked about with President Trump uh, possibly uh, seizing voting machines through the federal government. This is something that, of course, did not happen and would have created a massive constitutional crisis. But those were the roles that she played in all of this. Paul, given all of that, were you surprised by the fact that she pleaded guilty? Guilty pleas are really common in conspiracies with a lot of defendants like this case. These are two high-level attorneys in Donald Trump's orbit if they'd been convicted of the racketeering charges, they would have faced minimum sentences of five to 20 years. Now they're both getting off with probation. Two advantages for prosecutors here. First, both of these witnesses have agreed to testify truthfully against the remaining 16 defendants. The other advantage for the prosecutors is that if these cases had gone to trial as scheduled next week, a lot of the prosecutor's evidence and strategy would have been revealed to the other co-defendants. Mm -hmm. And prosecutors don't like to show their hand until they absolutely have to, which now won't be until the remaining defendants go on trial. And them testifying really is a key portion of a lot of this because this is what a RICO case is essentially built on. The idea is to go from the bottom up to get to the top. And once you can get all the people on the bottom, it's like a house of cards that just sort of collapses and you can kind of have a net that takes in everybody. And that person at the top right now is Donald Trump, the former president who's running for uh, the Republican nomination is the front runner for that. And we have this collision of the political and legal calendar that we've never seen before. And, and Paul, is there any sense, I mean, we're talking about the Georgia trial, which is broadly about the effort to deny and overturn the election. There's, of course, a separate federal trial about the same topic. Does a plea deal in the state level case affect in any way the the, the parallel federal case? Their guilty pleas in Georgia almost certainly incriminate them in a potential federal prosecution. So it's likely that soon their lawyers will be in discussion with the special counsel, Jack Smith, to see if there's a deal to be made. Okay, so that's Georgia. Let's head up the East Coast now to New York, where a civil fraud trial is already underway. This focuses on Trump's real estate empire, and it threatens his ability to keep doing business in New York. As a refresher, 
In a pretrial decision last month, the judge in the case has already ruled that Trump and his company had fraudulently inflated the value of their assets. And I'll note that Trump was hit this week with a $5,000 fine by the judge in this case for violating a gag order and attacking on social media a court staffer. Uh, But next week in this case, Michael Cohen's going to be testifying. Domenico, I feel like Michael Cohen is somebody, in some sense, we don't need a reminder of, (laughs) but it's been so long and so many things have happened. Remind us who Michael Cohen is, why he matters. This is somebody who was essentially Donald Trump's fixer, his conciliary, if you will. He was somebody who wound up flipping on Trump when the heat started to come on him because of uh, Trump essentially pushing money through Cohen to pay women who Trump was allegedly having an affair with, including the adult film actress Stormy Daniels. Which, of course, became one of the other criminal trials that Trump is facing right now. Right. I mean, there's just a handful of stuff that Michael Cohen has been at the center of, including testifying before the uh, January 6th Select Committee on Capitol Hill. Paul, what do you think? What are you expecting to hear from Cohen next week? And why do you think it matters? His testimony could help the New York Attorney General rebut Trump's defense in the fraud case, which is focused on blaming subordinates like accountants and appraisers for any issues with how the properties were valued. So Cohen could testify as to how involved Trump was in preparing the documents that prosecutors say uh, were fraudulent. What do you think is at stake here for Trump and how, if at all, does it connect to the other cases we're talking about? The New York Attorney General's office is asking for $250 million. Trump might actually have to pay that along with the other co-defendants. That would mean that he has to liquidate a lot of his assets in New York, including possibly Trump Tower. So it would have a huge impact on his brand and on his pocketbook. You know, the question for me is, are we going to see the smoking gun, the evidence that Trump was calling the shots? Because he's been famous for you know trying not to keep a paper trail or an electronic trail. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious to see in discovery, in uh, all the evidence that's brought forward, do we have a real clean connection that says Trump knew and Trump was calling the shots? That's Georgetown Law Professor, former federal prosecutor Paul Butler, as well as senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Thanks to both of you. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Finally today, Colombian reggaeton star Maluma performed at NPR's Tiny Desk recently. He sat down with NPR's alt-Latina hosts Felix Contreras and Anna Maria Sire to talk about his music and, as you'll hear in a moment, to share some big news. Sometimes people say that I'm a reggaetonero, but not a, I'm not a reggaetonero, you know. My genre is Maluma genre. I do whatever I love doing, you know. It's not like I do reggaeton and that's it. No, I love doing boleros, I love doing pop, I love doing salsa. So at the end of the day, it's like... That's actually why reggaeton is conquering uh, a bunch of charts right now because you can mix it with every genre, you know, like we can hear different kind of songs. Even my own songs, if you if you listen to Felice Los Cuatro, it's a very pop song, but the drums are a reggaeton drum. That's why it's so strong right now because you can mix it with every genre and that's what is happening right now in Latin America and around the world. People love reggaeton and urban music. You just announced mm-hmm. that you're going to be a dad. Oh my God, it's the first time we talk about that. I know, that's what I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> you, I mean, you cried. Yeah, it's crazy. During what a crazy Amor de feeling, Vida, and I couldn't, I couldn't help but think that that mm. had to relate to what you're feeling right now. 
That's me, man. I'm real. That's what. That's what I love about music. I can be myself. You know, like this is the only way, or some of the ways that I can talk to my fans through music. You know, and I just wanted to let them know that I was. And that I'm having a baby. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> How does it feel to say that out loud? <laughs> no, I, I cannot say it loud. You know, it's like yeah. I'm gonna be at that. It's impossible to say it that loud. But it's such a big dream. I always dream about this. It's perfect timing. I mean, all the beautiful things that I'm living. Uh, I'm looking for more personal experiences too. You know, like I love my music. I love being on tour. But I also want to keep growing as a human being, you know, not only as an artist. So this makes me feel so human, you know, and I love this. But at the same time, the more human I feel, the more artists I get. It's so, so yeah. weird. Like like Paris, our beautiful daughter, she's growing inside her mom's belly. And, and she gives me, wow, many reasons to keep dreaming. And it's like she made a reset on my mind, you know, like it's like she, she, She's everything to me right now. It's crazy. It's a crazy feeling that only parents are gonna understand. You know, it's like something like, right? It's yeah. weird. It's weird. Sure, but I just love this feeling, and 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 my days are brighter than ever. So I feel like everything around my life is working in a very positive way. It's like, okay, understanding life right now. Like everything is put in in the right place. Nothing bothers me anymore. It's like there is nothing bigger than Paris. So. If there is any problem in my life, I just think about Paris and that's like, it's done. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I know exactly what yeah, you mean, man. Bro. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, thank you for coming by and talking to us, man. Thank you, man. Yeah, really great, appreciate great that. Great Tiny concert. Really you're, you're on a roll. You got a great new album. You're out touring thank right you. now. So, so thank exciting. You. Yeah. So thank you. All success to you, man. Thank you. Thank Total you exit. very much. Gracias, hermano. Bueno, gracias. 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 <laughs> That was Colombian reggaeton star Maluma speaking with NPR's Felix Contreras and Anna Maria Sayre. You can check out Maluma's Tiny Desk Concert over at NPR.org. And for Saturday, that is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you have a peaceful night, and we will talk to you again tomorrow.